This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. What I think will happen to cryptocurrencies in 2031. Right now, we, we use them probably mostly for speculation, as in we buy them and hope that the price will go up. But I think that over the course of the next decade, we're increasingly going to be holding cryptocurrencies as collateral and or staking cryptocurrencies in these digital infrastructures that, that they're created through, thereby generating stable coins or other assets that become what we spend. But the cryptocurrencies themselves will be probably, I expect, uh, more like having a stake in a company or an infrastructure and then you're essentially earning rewards from participation in that and that becomes the income. That's where I expect it will go. I think we're seeing uh, indications of that occurring already through how people are using cryptocurrencies and how the infrastructures are evolving. But I think it will be far less about speculation than it is right now. That was Ellie Rennie. She's a professor at the Digital Ethnography Research Centre and part of the Blockchain Innovation Hub at RMIT University. Ellie is also an Australian Research Council Future Fellow and is here to talk about the state of cryptocurrency in 2031. I'm Arvin Yuvaraj and this is Futurescapes, an audio time capsule that's not just a prediction of the world to come, but a record of the times that we are in now, with technologies and concepts in their infancy that could, someday, change everything. There's a few different things that could be happening, but there are some things that we know will be fairly certain. I suppose one of them, one of the obvious ones, is that the issuance of Bitcoin will still be continuing. So we have over 18 million Bitcoins at the moment that have been created. That won't finish until more than 100 years from now. So I think uh, around uh, 2140, we're expecting that there will be all the Bitcoins that will ever be made produced, and that's 21 million. But the rate at which Bitcoins are being produced slows. There are intervals and they're called the halvening. And when the halvening happens, it halves the number of Bitcoins that can be mined. So we can say that Bitcoin will get more scarce, assuming that the demand stays the same or increases. So the thing about Bitcoin, which is important, is that there's a limited number of them that will ever be produced, which means they get scarcer and scarcer. Other cryptocurrencies are a bit different, um, but the other major one, which I think is really interesting and where my thoughts about 2031 immediately go to, is Ethereum. Ethereum has a very different monetary policy and it is quite complex, but it is controlled so that it's not as it's not like there will be an infinite number of Ethereum in the world at any time. So Ethereum is much more determined by network use. 
and uh, supply will be controlled according to how much the network is consuming at the time. What about the people, though? Like all the Bitcoin billionaires, you know, because there's so much money in it now um, and it's only going to go up, like you said. So what are those guys doing in 2031? Because they have to be controlling like some segment of the financial ecosystem at that point, right? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. With Bitcoin, because Bitcoin is essentially a store of value in the way that wealthy people store gold, people will store Bitcoin I think for the other types of cryptocurrencies, it's a bit different in that if you hold a lot of that cryptocurrency, if you hold their so-called governance token, that actually gives you voting rights within that protocol. So you're also a decision maker. Political scientists call that plutocracy, uh, where those who uh, have resources have the most power. And that, I think, is what the current direction of these protocols seems to be. In some of them, uh, for instance, Uniswap, a substantial amount of those those tokens were bought by venture capitalists. They can also potentially have a lot of say in how they change. For instance, you know, upgrades to the protocol, but even things like interest rates. And if if you think of these as being like a new form of a bank, then they might have a lot of say over things like interest rates or what, how those, um, what different assets might be, be able to be stored in that bank, those kinds of things. I think that is potentially a concern. And my hope is that the the communities around these protocols will um, not stand for that and make sure that it's it's somewhat more democratic. Because, of course, even the ways that we vote in these protocols can be changed. So we've seen a few new currencies pop up over the years. Uh, there's been Litecoin and then like recently Dogecoin. When will this hit a ceiling, you think, this introduction of new coins all the time? And will crypto... Um, or the crypto scene be fixed with a few official players, so maybe like Ether and Bitcoin and a few others? Well, yeah, I'm not sure that that's the case, actually, because because we're seeing things such as Polkadot uh, emerge, which are essentially um, ways of connecting different blockchains together so that you can send tokens across different blockchains and ensure that... Um, the record keeping that goes on in those blockchains matches up, which is the important thing. Um, because because we're having the, this these ways of linking blockchains, we could have a multi-blockchain environment. At the moment, it looks like Ethereum will dominate because there are just so many developers and so many people using it. And yet it's entirely possible that you could create a bespoke blockchain platform that is just for one thing, like just for one supply chain or one energy market or whatever it might be. And that blockchain is connected and able to transact with others. So if that happens, I can foresee by the time we reach 2031 that there will be more tokens and each of those tokens could represent, you know, smaller markets that are able to interact with each other. So we don't know yet 
if it will just be, you know, a few dominant tokens or whether we will see quite a few emerging. Um, and I, I am probably leaning towards we may have some dominant platforms, but when uh, a company or, or a collective of groups needs a, a specific purpose with specific attributes that it might just be easier and make more sense for them to have their own discrete blockchain. Yeah. Is there a chance that this is just a phase and it goes away for some reason? Like in 2031, we remember crypto as the next big thing that never was. Oh, there's there's a chance, but I think it's a chance that's rapidly fading. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, uh, look, if you'd asked me that question two, two years ago, maybe even a year ago, I would have said that there was a reasonable chance of that. And now I'm not sure if 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 we want to answer that question, we need to talk about what the risks are to these cryptocurrencies. And I think what we've seen is that um, Western democratic states at least uh, are not going in hard on regulating cryptocurrencies as we thought they might at one point. Some countries are um, and I think those countries are ones where there is significant state surveillance and that is accepted within that country, for instance, China. But that won't be tolerated in large parts of the world. And being able to run blockchains and develop tokens to go with these new economies will be seen as um, an economic freedom in itself that needs to be maintained. Of course, there's still a lot that needs to be resolved for that to work well, um, including at that state regulatory level. For instance, a lot of countries haven't dealt with tax very well <laughs> when it comes to cryptocurrency. So I think that um, at the moment it is it, it feels tenuous because we don't have the regulatory environment that would make this a really um, strong and growing digital economy. And, of course, there are significant benefits for governments if they do it right, including the ability to, you know, have tokenized systems that make things like regulation of through protocols, through code itself of particular industries easier, um, auditing becomes easier because these can be very tran transparent infrastructures and tax itself could become easier. I think that the biggest threat that would kill these things is governments and the only other, only other way that, that they could do that is if they developed their own digital currencies and many, many countries are looking to do this right now. They're called central bank digital currencies but I think they will be quite restricted, that these things will be a particular kind of currency equivalent to a stable coin in cryptocurrency language, and they won't necessarily have the innovation that we're seeing coming through in the rest of the crypto landscape. I want to know about schools, though, because, you know, like as the crypto space gets more robust, there's no way that schools and even colleges and, and universities can continue ignoring its existence, right? Like at some point, you have to start teaching kids about um, the logic behind this financial landscape. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I work in a university and people can do an, an undergraduate degree in blockchain 
with us now um, and we also have online courses and we're, we're focusing more on business students than, uh, you know, computer science and engineering students because we feel that this is a new infrastructure, not just a digital infrastructure, but it is the underlying basis of the economy now or could be or will be soon, that people really, really need to understand that and have some literacy in it. Because the problem is if you don't educate people about it, they can rush in, not do their own research and get scammed. And it the problem is that too many, I think, educators either don't understand it themselves or they're suspicious of it because this is something which has emerged largely in spite of the university sector. There have been a couple of interesting blockchain projects that have come out of universities or been led by academics. Um, Algorand is one. Uh, we call them professor coins. <laughs> um, but, but actually most of the innovation for, for once, or maybe it's not unique, but there'd only be a few examples where an industry has really a very scientific industry has emerged without really any university input or relationship. So um, I, I suspect, as an academic, I suspect academics are suspicious of it because they feel excluded. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so I'm thinking about the kind of uh, social divide that this might create or has the potential of creating because uh, there are people in this world who um, have no access to computers or the internet or any kind of digital device, lots of them. Um, at least with cash, they can hold on to some level of wealth, right? But crypto is is a completely inaccessible space to them that keeps growing for some people while others have no idea it even exists or, or that there's money to be made there. So there's no opportunity. What are your thoughts on that? Like this sort of, is there a potential for that divide, you think? Yes. Um, I've spent, gosh, almost two decades of my career researching digital inclusion. And I think it's an extremely important issue. In fact, I did quite a lot of research in Sarawak at one point, um, working with, with um, people in, in the Barham region who had very, very poor internet connectivity, if at all, or access to mobile phones. It was quite revealing in terms of just the extent of, of trouble that they had to go to to do quite a basic task like um, receive a welfare payment or, um, you know, do any other kind of transaction that most of us would find pretty straightforward to do online and quick. But it would cost them money just to go do those transactions. And it's similar in remote parts of Australia as well. So even as the digital divide, the so-called digital divide gets smaller because more people have access to, say, cheap phones or internet plans, uh, those that don't have that will be further excluded. If you really want to participate in them, it's not just about using the cryptocurrencies. It is about, in, you know, doing something like in, on Ethereum, running a validator to really participate in Ethereum. You need to run a validator. And I can tell you right now that's going to use much more than a terabyte of data a month. And that may reduce over time, as we've seen with other things. So it used to be very, very hard to access internet banking. It's now something you can do on your phone and you won't use much data to do that. And 
Um, and I also think that in terms of the literacy aspect of it, uh, it, it might be like with other internet applications where we don't necessarily know uh, that when we're using the web, it's HTTP protocol or whatever it might be. Um, it's it's just something that we do. I think it will be like that with blockchain. This will just become something that's in the background and something that we are transacting with or um, say exchanging things or whatever kind of service it might be. But right now, Web3 is actually, we call it Web3, the, the blockchain internet. It's quite different to use because it does have things like public and private keys, new ways of doing digital identity where you don't have to hand over your data. It, it will be interesting to see where the inclusion and exclusion falls for that reason. So how much, I suppose, to sum up, access is not just about whether you have access to connectivity or a device, it's also about do you have the skills needed to use that particular platform or application or protocol? And uh, we, don't, we don't yet know with blockchain um, how we're going to make that an easy experience for people. It's, it's a hard experience. And as for the access side of it, um, yeah, I think it's entirely possible that those who don't have access to the internet will um, miss out on the benefits that this could bring. What do you think will be the biggest takeaway from crypto in the next 10 years? Like, will it be the, the concept of crypto? Will it be the, the decentralization or the blockchain technology? Like, what will benefit us and other industries the most? I think it's going to be the decentralization. So back in the late 90s, early 2000s, when I was just starting my PhD, and I was doing it in... Um, media and communication studies as a field. And at that time, those of us who were beginning to be aware of how this thing called the internet was evolving were quite confident that user-generated content was going to democratise everything and was going to um, change the world. And, of course, the, the incredible thing about the internet has been what it's done for information and access to information and, indeed, the ability for any of us to create something and post it for, and share it with others. What we didn't really foresee in a big way was that the, the internet would replicate the centralising tendencies of capitalist economies and, in fact, do it on speed so that we have these gigantic corporations able to use our data and monetize that and if not sell it to others, be able to use it within their own suite of services that in ways that kind of keep you there, right? So the, who was the loser in that situation? One of the big losers was newspapers um, and they suffered a lot, media organizations in general, but particularly print media. So we could say that in 2031 maybe banks will be the ones that are looking for public support and funding to, to exist. <laughs> but at the same time, um, I think what is interesting about 
technological infrastructure that we have is it does go against that centralizing tendency. So these, um, no one owns Ethereum really. Uh, it is, a, you know, anyone can join and run a node and the more people who do, the more secure it gets. And the same with Bitcoin and, and many other blockchains. So the, re- the fully distributed public blockchains, what they're doing is they are changing who has power and where that power resides. You can spin up a whole economy. I call them pop-up economies. For instance, Oxfam going into Vanuatu and using blockchain to do cash transfers and aid in a place after a natural disaster has occurred. Um, They can do this without needing to rely on institutions and banks. With blockchain, that can be done so much more easily. And so I think for there is and a possibility that in 2031 we will have not just um, a more decentralized internet, but we will have a more decentralized world. So that's probably the uh, the I- idealistic view of of where it could go. But there there will be there will undoubtedly be a dark side to this, uh, and that that's what we need to be on the lookout for. Do you think crypto can reach a, a, a level of uh, sustainability or eco-friendliness in the future that is satisfactory? Because um, am I wrong to think that currently it has a bit of a worrying carbon footprint at the moment? Yes, it does. You're right. Um, but I, I'm confident that it will overcome that. And in fact, not, not confident that it will. I think it has to if it's going to remain socially acceptable. What is interesting about that is a number of miners are gravitating towards things like hydropower or solar, um, wind, because it is, it is cheap and because you can mine it anywhere. Um, you could, you could mine Bitcoin at the source and it, you don't need to get it to a grid, which is, you know, energy grids are there to, to service households. You don't need to get it there. You can do it at the source. And often that is where Bitcoin is being mined and it's using excess energy that is surplus to requirements and that's why it's cheap. But we do know that even those miners will often move to a different part of the world where when, for instance, you know, there's low rainfall and, and they were using hydro. So that means that they will then they could go somewhere that uses coal in the production of electricity. So it and and, and the other factor to keep in mind here is that if you're using renewables um, in an energy grid, you you need to do something with energy that when you have too much energy, you actually need to find a use for it. Otherwise it can destabilize the grid. We've had problems with that here in Australia. Bitcoin, I've heard some describe it as an economic battery because it's a way to turn that waste energy into money which can then be used for um, expansion of activities which are good for the environment and it can also help stabilize activities that that need to be stabilized in order for our energy grids to work more effectively. A lot of the concern around energy use lately has been with regards to NFTs, non-fungible tokens, which are being used for digital artworks in particular, but can be used for many, many things. And 
uh, it's worth pointing out with that one that Ethereum is moving to proof of stake. It's it's in the process of doing that. The um, the, the current transaction layer of Ethereum will be merged with the staking layer of Ethereum probably later this year. And when that happens, they won't need the proof of work miners anymore. And that will reduce the carbon footprint of Ethereum by 99%. I guess the most important question is, you know, are you happy with the future that you've described throughout the show? You know, is this your ideal future? Because the most important thing is the other people right, living in this future. So is it ideal? Like, are you optimistic about it? Are you excited? I'm optimistic about it because I think that we need to fix the internet. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if we look at the problems of the world right now, so much of them are related to misinformation. They're related to privacy and surveillance problems. And they're related to the the vast inequalities that are happening um, through the way that our economy is evolving. And I think that what blockchain does is it fundamentally at the absolute base level changes those things and, well, at least gives us the ability to approach things such as privacy differently. So I, I, I'm I still an optimist when it comes to this and I think that the focus on a few small wealthy individuals who were a bunch of people who bought Bitcoin when it was really cheap <laughs> is um, it's a distraction because, you know, there are plenty of people who got rich other ways too and they'll probably just go sit in their mansions and uh, we can mostly forget all about them hopefully. What, what really matters is how the rest of us are able to um, participate and um transact in a peer-to-peer way and I suppose find our freedom and our capabilities um, through, through a better technology. Again, that was Professor Ellie Rennie from the Digital Ethnography Research Centre at RMIT University. She's also on Twitter at Eleanor Rennie. Be sure to follow Futurescapes wherever you're streaming this from so that you don't miss out on future episodes. Upcoming topics include education, deepfake and autonomous vehicles in 2031. For now, I'll leave you with a clip from a documentary that aired in 1967 called The Medium is the Message, in which Canadian philosopher Marshall McLuhan predicted the invention of social media, which he called the global village, for lack of a better term. This has been Futurescapes on BFM 89.9. instantaneous world of electric informational media involves all of us, all at once. Ours is a brand new world of all at onceness. Global Village is not created by the motor car or even by the airplane. It's created by instant electronic uh, information movement. The Global Village is at once as wide as the planet and as small as a little town where everybody is maliciously engaged and poking his nose into everybody else's business. The uh, global village is a world in which uh, you don't necessarily have harmony. You have extreme concern with everybody else's business. 
and much involvement in everybody else's life. It's a sort of Ann Landers column writ large. And uh, it uh, doesn't necessarily mean harmony and peace and quiet, but it does mean huge involvement in everybody's else, everybody else's affairs. And so the global village is as big as the planet and as small as uh, the village post office. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.